Defence Secretary visits Ukraine pledging further support for Kiev government. I'm here to reaffirm our support for Ukraine in its fight for freedom, its right to territorial integrity. Commemorations take place to mark 70 years since VJ Day. Japan looks to push through controversial military reforms. Hello there, welcome to SITREP with me, Tim Cooper. The Defence Secretary has announced that the UK is doubling the number of Ukrainian troops it will train this year. On a visit to the country, Michael Fallon has said that more than 1,000 have received training. The goal, though, is to reach 2,000 by the end of the year. He said it's an effort to support Kiev in its fight against Russia-backed separatists. Last week, it was announced that the MOD is developing a plan that could see British troops sent to Libya as part of an international stabilisation force. But that's only if there's a unified government that could be formed inside Libya. So the question is, is this the new role of Britain's military, training others to do their work? With me in the studio, our defence analyst Christopher Lee, and alongside him, Major General Julian Thompson, former Royal Marine Commander and a military historian of some eminence. Now, this training, gentlemen, of Ukrainian soldiers, uh, Christopher, is it a significant bid to help Kiev or just window dressing? Um, it's, a, it's a bid to help Kiev, um, but it unlike in other places, like, for example, Syria, where it's never been clear, in fact, what your effects might be, um, we see, if we'll call it Western Ukraine, is our bit to support against the war that's still going on in Donbass, which is the eastern side of it. And therefore, by proxy, it's a war, in theory, against Putinism, if it isn't a war. But But also, I think the British, more than anything else, have this difficulty about Ukraine. We're an island nation, and therefore we don't really understand borders as much. And I was just thinking to ourselves, you know, when Ukraine became independent in 1991, um, what was around it? I mean, to the east you've got Russia, Belarus, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Moldova, and then the Black Sea, which is mainly Russian territory. Now, you are a country with more borders with more countries than any other, and therefore you've got more uh, potential conflict. Mm. And to some extent that, when was it now, two years ago, when President uh, Yanukovych, or the street protest started, which started all this thing going, it's the one thing that we did not understand. Whatever was going to replace it was going to have to, we're going to have to understand that border relationship. Christopher says we don't understand Ukraine, its position within that region, Julian. Uh, Does that lead us to some dangers with this training then? Well, the danger of it is that our training will be misunderstood as part of a, a, a means to actually get involved in the fighting. And, and uh, I heard more of that broadcast we've heard earlier from the Secretary of State for Defence. He made it quite plain that it was happening in a part of Ukraine which was quite a long way away from where the fighting is. And the whole emphasis was training them to be able to operate themselves more efficiently, not to, as it were, be there rather like advisors in a, a Vietnam-type situation where you're right behind the fighting troops and advising a fighting commander on the ground. I mean, that's a totally different ball game. But it is an indication, isn't it, that we have taken a side, and it uh, isn't Putin's? Yes, it, it is an indication, and it's very much a political statement, actually. As again we heard, it's the British government saying we support these people's right to be independent. And we've done that since, what, um, 2002, mm. with NATO, with the Ukraine Action Plan. And we're sort of commit. We're 
we're committed to that. It's not the sort of what thing you got in the April 49 agreement that attack on one is an attack on them all. This is outside of that. But we're, we're, we're the good guys, that's the way we would put it, and we see Putin still as the bad guy. Let's bring in Professor Michael Clark, Director of the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, regular on the programme, expert in, in all matters, it appears to me, whenever I've spoken with you, Michael. And I want to ask one very simple question. Um, Libya as well that fits into this. Is Britain in danger of becoming the mi- military trainer of the world rather than active fighting force? And is that because of what we've seen in SDSR, Army 2020 and so forth? Well, I think the military wouldn't say that that's a danger. That's something that they want to do. It's, I mean, be, being a, a, a valued training organisation is based on the fact that we have a good military reputation and the, the, the theory is that this is a way in which we can exercise soft power, that our military, we can, we can cash in the use of the military um, by helping to train friendly forces in nations that uh, represent something that we want to back. The danger, of course is that ultimately people only want your training if you are seen as good in combat. You've got to have that credibility. And off the back of Afghanistan and Iraq, which were um, uh, controversial and which there have been lots of questions asked about the effectiveness of our forces, then you can only go so far before your training may not seem as appropriate. So it is, it's by, by and large a good thing to do, but it always has to be balanced with a reputation for real combat effectiveness. Just one one small thing here. It's not something that's done out of the petty cash of the MOT budget. Do you know how many... The army alone is in 80, 80 countries uh, yeah. in the world doing either training roles, support roles. I mean, the British Peace support team in places like Kenya. And that is Syria. soft power, isn't it? This and we're exerting power. a lot of it. And, of course, it is. It, there is an imperial... The colonial tradition of this because within the old empire mm. within the commonwealth of 53 nations there is that connection and at one time of course all the presidents of these places were all trained at sandhurst anyway and a lot of them still are i mean every time there's a sovereign's parade you always get a large number of foreign troops Let, let's move on we talked about soft power there uh, and michael stay with us i want to talk about uh, operation shader and last weekend an example of the uk's hard power as, as it were at the moment it, it's been a year the one-year anniversary of operation shader strikes against Islamic State, of course, planes taking off from RAF Akrotiri. The UK has launched more than 260 of a total of 6,000 airstrikes carried out in total by this coalition that is fighting IS. Uh, There's likely to be a push as well for Britain's air operations to be expanded over Syria, and that's probably likely to happen when MPs return from their summer break. Um, Michael Clark from Rusi, let's talk about this in, in black and white terms. 260 out of 6,000 doesn't seem an awful lot. So the question is, are the British operations, is the British involvement actually making any difference? Uh, numbers are low. Um, effectiveness is higher, not, not especially high, but higher, because remember that British um, uh, systems are able to operate in the same way that American ones do. So we do have very accurate um, uh, b- b- bombing systems, which are very accurate, and the I-Star that backs it up is very accurate. So we can do, even though we're, we're doing very few of the operations, we can do them to the same degree of accuracy as the United States. But a paveway um, bomb is very expensive, Michael. It, it may is, be accurate. It is. No, it is, and undoubtedly, you know, we're, we're not we're not making a fundamental difference to the campaign. But also remember that um, we're doing a lot of the surveillance and reconnaissance over Syria. I mean, we say that we're not involved in the air campaign over Syria. We're doing everything but drop bombs over Syria um, because our, our aircraft and the, the uh, um, Secretary of State for Defence takes some pride in this, uh, is saying that, you know, we are acti- we're, we're actively 
um, helping the coalition both in Iraq and Syria, whether we're dropping bombs or not. Now, how you measure all of that is very, very difficult. So I would say, if somebody said to me, take all the British operations out of it entirely, would anything change? No, not very much. But in those operations, yes, there are some marginal benefits, and there is the big political issue that this is a joint operation and we're lining up with the Americans doing the same sort of things that they are doing with the same sort of technologies, though at a much lower level. Being seen to do. Um, there's been a lot of conflicting talk about the effectiveness of the entire air campaign. Some reports saying that IS haven't been weakened at all. What has history, Michael, told us about the effectiveness of air campaigns and solely air campaigns like this? Yeah, air campaigns alone have a very poor record in, in winning wars, to put it crudely. Um, on the other hand, you can't win a war... Um, or very difficult to win a war without real air superiority or air dominance of some sort. But, I mean, the, 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 um, uh, the apostles of air power have long um, argued that, oh, if only you just let air power off the leash, it can win wars for you. And that goes back to the 1930s, to be honest. And it's never true. No. And so the, the, the problem with air power is that ultimately, ultimately, somebody has to go in on the ground and occupy territory. You know, the, we say boots on the ground, which is a very terrible phrase. Mm. But ultimately, you only control territory that you physically occupy. You can influence territory from the air, from cyberspace, from, with soft power. But you can only control territory if somebody's physically there on the ground. And air power can assist in that and can facilitate it, can't make it happen. One very quick question to Julian Thompson, if I may, here. Um, is this air campaign justifying the RAF's existence? Um, <laughs> there's the old age-old discussion that the Air Force isn't needed anymore, could be split between the Royal Navy and the Army. Well, you wouldn't need an Air Force to mount this air campaign if you split the Air Force between the Army and the Navy, which is something I've always recommended. Uh, you just uh, you have the UAVs work by one, one lot and, and, and perhaps the, the transport side work by somebody else. You don't actually need an independent Air Force to do a campaign like this, no. OK, thanks very much on that one. Professor Michael Clark. you've got to go now, but thank you very much for joining us here on SITREP. Still to come, commemorations to mark VJ Day 70 years on. Let us join in thanking Almighty God that war has ended throughout the world. This is BFBS SITREP. Some stories in brief now. Families of British soldiers killed in Iraq are threatening today to take legal action against Sir John Chilcott, who led the inquiry into the conflict. Lawyers claim he acted unlawfully by refusing to set a deadline for publication. Christopher, is this sort of pressure going to speed things up? Is it the right sort of pressure? Um, Sir John doesn't get pressure. He doesn't realise it. But I'll tell you, let's, let's remind people, six years they've waited for this. What the best plan they have so far is the... Chilcott Inquiry has said to people who have been fanged in this report, hey, listen, you were coming off bad, would you like to reply? Now, a lot of them have not yet replied. Until they do reply, Chilcott says, I can't do a report. What these families would like to see happen is that Chilcott to say, uh, you've got three months to reply. If you don't reply in three months then we're going to publish without your response. And that's the best. And on the legal side, as far as I've been able to discover, there is no legal requirement for them to have all the time in the world to make a reply. They haven't even got the legal uh, 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 facility to actually make their reply before the, before the report is published. So mm. that's the thing from the end. And don't forget, this is, we're talking about six years um, this report's been running, but let's not forget we're talking about something that happened in 2003, so you could understand why families want 
closure on this. It's almost a generation away from that. Julian Thompson, what are your views about well, the inquiry itself? Is it a constructive thing? Well, I think you need an inquiry, certainly, because it's so controversial, the, the reason for going to Iraq, and there's so much that needs to come out that the public needs to know. What I find extraordinary is this thing that uh, Christopher alluded to, that the right of reply people are not jumping up and, and replying. I mean, if, if I was going to be taken to court, by, or not taken, but slagged off, put it crudely, by the inquiry, I'd be in there with an answer process of maxwellization i believe it's called yeah, i tell you one thing it's fascinating <laughs> i was talking to somebody the other day in the law courts and i said why hasn't john kill done his done the business on this he said well you know he's on 875 quid a day and the other members of the committee are on 565 pounds a day uh, he said another six years mm-hmm. we think we get a report by easter by the way Excellent. Um, right, let's move on to VJ Day. And this weekend, Her Majesty the Queen and members of the Royal Family will join veterans, former prisoners of war and civilian internees at a series of events to commemorate the 70th anniversary of Victory Over Japan Day, the 15th of August, marking the official end of the Second World War. Patrick Ede looks back at the summer of 1945. As the war in Europe drew to a close in May 1945, British Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill addressed an exhausted but jubilant British public and its forces. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. But let us not forget for a moment the toils and efforts that lie ahead. Japan, with all her treachery and greed, remains unsubdued. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the king. When the lights go on again, all over the world. Whilst the crowds took in the news, the struggle for freedom went on in the Far East. The appalling conditions endured by British and Commonwealth troops at the hands of their Japanese captors slowly came to light. After a period of recuperation, Sergeant Frank Foster described the conditions during the building of the Burma Railway. The Japanese told us that our job was to build a section of the new railway from Siam to Burma. I especially remember one Jap engineer in charge of a working party. His favourite way of getting his orders quickly carried out was to chuck down iron rivets and bars from his perch on the top of the bridge onto the heads of our officers and men working below. When the monsoon broke out with a 72-hour non-stop downpour, most of us prisoners were very nearly at our last gasp. The embattled remnants of the British 14th Army strove to liberate Burma, Malaya, Singapore and Hong Kong. The might of the Allied forces began to close in as 1945 wore on. On the 6th of August, newsreader Frank Phillips announced this historic bulletin on the BBC. Scientists, British and American have made the atomic bomb at last. The first one was dropped on a Japanese city this morning. It was designed for a detonation equal to 20,000 tonnes of high explosives. That's 2,000 times the power of one of the RAF's 10-tonne bombs of orthodox design. In 
Enola Gay, named after the mother of Colonel Paul Tibbetts, the pilot of the Boeing B-29 Superfortress bomber, which dropped the first atomic bomb, causing unprecedented destruction. 70% of the city's buildings were destroyed. 80,000 killed in the blast and following firestorm, 20,000 of them soldiers. Three days later, another atomic bomb exploded over Nagasaki. It was witnessed by Group Captain Leonard Cheshire. At the time of the explosion, we were wearing Polaroid welder's glasses. They were so dark that even the tropical sun showed through them as nothing more than a vague pinpoint of light. We looked out towards the target and saw a vast ball of fire. The cloud rose to a height of 60,000 feet in less than five minutes. Throughout the whole time, it remained a boiling, turbulent mass and continued expanding until it reached some two miles across. A week later and the end had come. Almost 100,000 British and Commonwealth troops had died in the Far East campaign. 120,000 Japanese forces perished. His Majesty King George V and Clement Attlee, Britain's newly elected Prime Minister, addressed the nation on the 15th of August, 1945. Japan has today surrendered. The last of our enemies is laid low. So let us join in thanking Almighty God that war has ended throughout the world. That conflict from September 1939 to August 1945 claimed 60 million lives. Some historians put the figure as high as 80 million. The world had changed forever. But VJ Day is for the memory of those men who didn't come back, for the sacrifice they made in the hope that nations would never go to war with one another again. Patrick Ede there with a look ahead to this week's VJ Day commemoration. Some fascinating memories there. And since those dark days 70 years ago, Japan's military has been restricted from taking action abroad. But that could be about to change. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's national security bill would allow the military to provide limited support to an overseas force working under a UN mandate. But why this change now? Well, to look at this, we are joined by Alessio Patellano, Senior lecture, Lecturer in War Studies at King's College in London. Alessio, this move by Abe is hugely controversial in Japan. Why is that? Well, it is hugely controversial because Prime Minister Abe um, has uh, promoted a security agenda that wanted to see a stronger Japan at the international level. Um, and he's also voiced uh, uh, doubts about uh, um, the role that Japan had um, in the past. So there is a degree of uh, um, uh, 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 insecurity as to how far he wants to change the current uh, state of things. And in addition to that, the Japanese people have been no longer accustomed for a long time in thinking about their own country in terms of, of a security contributor and provider rather than just a security user. Now, China's actions in the East China Sea, are they a reason, a contributing factor to this sort of generational shift, as you put it there almost, of Japan's role in, with military force? Absolutely. Without uh, China and in particular uh, the increasing military muscular way of uh, um, uh, uh, presenting itself within its immediate neighborhood, both in the East and the South China Sea, 
there would be no timing at the moment for the prime minister to push for such an agenda. So the military rise of China has been a driving factor in the timely sort of uh, uh, nature of the security bill. That being said, Japan's interests in terms of security are much broader than China itself. These were long overdue sort of uh, transformation, if you want, particularly because as a maritime nation, Japan relies heavily on sea lanes and unfettered access to maritime trade arteries. Now, what about the U.S.? We've seen them shift their focus towards the Pacific, the West as well. It, it, you could say it's been a dormant area, but it's coming alive now. What does Japan's change mean to the rest of us? Well, I think in part, this change has been also promoted by Washington. The, uh, Japan um, is um, one of the closest allies of the United States. Certainly, uh, both the military presence that the United States had in the Japanese archipelago and the role that Japan has played over the past 60 years in that part of the world has been essential for the United States to, you know, to implement their strategy in the Western Pacific and in East Asia in a broader sense. So in this respect, these uh, moves by Japan fall within a broader reviewing of the uh, U.S.-Japan Security Alliance and the empowering of the Japanese military to work more effectively and in a more interoperable way together and alongside the U.S. military, both in the East China Sea and in the uh, areas beyond its boundaries. Christopher Lee, um, you've got to look at this in, in, in a strategic level. Uh, this is about the third hike, not big ones, that uh, the, the Japanese parliament has agreed that yet has a, a parliament in defence spending. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, he's looking far more in territorial problems. For example, there's some islands just south of Okinawa and Nancy Shoto Islands uh, that he's got to protect. When you start looking at what's on the shopping list, um, including the beginnings of an amphibious rapid deployments brigade, a brigade of 3,000 men ought to be trained from scratch. When you look at the fact that he's ordering six uh, American F-35As, um, joint strike fighters, a, a sort of aircraft that we're ordering for, uh, for the Royal Navy, um, he wants an increase in his maritime patrol aircraft. He wants to have a look and have a constant look and a constant feedback of what's happening there. Um, and because of the, the newly formed assault group, he's ordered 30 uh, AA-7s as well. Mm. So therefore, you get an idea of a very rapid mobile force, which is the beginnings, especially if you, if you put in the amphibious rapid deployment group, it, the, the beginning of a, minor, uh, of a force which has got longer legs, longer ability to survive, and it can look further than they've ever looked before. Alessio, that sounds like militarisation to me. Should we be worried about it, just briefly? Um, no, I don't think that's the case. Um, if, I, if I could sort of elaborate a bit more on the last comment, I think what we're looking at is a short, uh, uh, a short leg projection uh, uh, force uh, precisely to operate within the uh, Japanese archipelago and a slightly longer distance expeditionary force uh, which would lack of an independent projection capability outside the context of either the U.S.-Japan alliance or an international sort of coalition. So at this moment, what we're looking at is a Japan that is uh, complementing what it has in order to 
um, uh, ensure the protection of the sort of um, home uh, uh, territories, as it were, um, whilst at the same time retaining that capability to operate in an international sphere as it has been doing now for some time. Alessio Patalano from King's College in London. Thanks ever so much indeed for joining us. And Alessio was talking there about the special relationship, as it were, between America and the US. But the one between Britain and America has been much touted by political leaders. Think Thatcher and Reagan riding horses together, Blair and Bush, of course, more recently. But a new book explores strong military alliances that, in fact, go back much further than that. Yanks and Limeys, Alliance Warfare in the Second World War, looks in detail at a relationship described by the then US Army Chief of Staff, General George Marshall, as the most complete unification of military effort ever achieved by two allied nations. Its author is Neil Barr, who joins us in the SITREP studio now. And Neil, what made the Second World War alliance between the UK and America so special? I think what really makes it special is the fact that they thrash out uh, the strategic dilemmas that they both face uh, in open conference um, with their chiefs of staff uh, and their political leaders. Um, In that sense, uh, they argue fiercely and ferociously uh, between themselves, um, but in arguing, uh, they come up with a strategy which ultimately works. Uh, And it means that although both sides have very different national interests, uh, they are able to weld their military uh, effort together. Sort of sibling rivalry, I suppose, thrashing it out to get to the common goal that both ultimately want. But let's go back. How far does this shared military history go back through time? Uh, it's uh, it's quite uh, remarkable in a way that the shared military history goes back into the 18th and even into the 17th century, uh, because of course the uh, United States of America began as the 13 uh, British colonies uh, on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Um, so there's actually Uh, a much longer and deeper uh, military history between the two countries than we're often aware of. So we're talking relatively relatively quickly after the War of Independence. We were forming alliances together. Well, of course, no, (laughs) is is the simple answer. Um, We fight in alliance uh, with the provincial governments in the Seven Years' War, in in what is in America called the uh, French and Indian Wars. Uh, And then you see a a breakdown in relations uh, with the uh, American War of Independence and the War of 1812, which lasts for much of the 19th century. Um, But, of course, until Canada... Uh, develops in the 1870s, you still actually have British troops garrisoning uh, forts in Canada um, and, in that sense, interacting with the United States uh, well into the 19th century. So, although these are intermittent connections, uh, they're nonetheless important for what transpires in the 20th century. I'm fascinated on the strategic level, but also the book, and the the particular elements I enjoyed were the the soldier-to-soldier alliances. Just expand on that a little for us. Yes, I I think it's um, easy, uh, and the the broader uh, strategic debates uh, and the great beasts, as it were, uh, of the Second World War in terms of the great generals, everybody's fairly familiar with that. One of the things I wanted to look at in the book was how ordinary soldiers got on. 
And it has to be said that at the beginning, uh, in early 1942, when the first Americans arrive in Britain, they get on very, very badly indeed, <laughs> uh, particularly in, in, in pubs when, uh, when they've uh, perhaps both ha or, or all had uh, too much to drink. Um, and yet one of the, uh, I think, interesting stories in the book is the way that during combat uh, and fighting shoulder to shoulder on, on the, the battlefields of Tunisia, Italy uh, and uh, France, uh, actually uh, British and American soldiers do uh, gain respect uh, from one another. It, it reminds me very much, you mentioned there, that the distrust in 1942 is a little publication put, given to American soldiers at that time with phrases and ideas for dealing with the Brits. They were that alien, weren't they? Christopher, Julian, come in on it, this. It, can I my my great-aunt Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really see any funny about my great-aunt Joyce, yeah. except she married a GI. Yes. Yeah. And she married a GI and they went, they went to live, in fact, in Bethesda. And one of the uh, results was my cousin, great cousin, whatever he's called, second cousin, Ian. And Ian then joined the Pentagon, and then as a civilian. And he was one of the five candidate uh, uh, interrogators, as they were then called, who opposed the British uh, joining up with America in the, in the Gulf War. And Interesting. That ain't full circle. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating. Well, it's actually, it's not very interesting, but I thought I'd mention it. <laughs> well, it was good to get your great aunt Joyce in. We always like having her here on Sitrep. I mean, one very quick question. We've only got 30 seconds literally on this. There are times when that relationship is strained, and Julian, I'm thinking Falklands conflict here. Yes, it was strained, but in fact, of course, they did come on side, and they, all, and they came on side earlier than one might expect, it, particularly the Secretary of State for Defence, who started giving us kit long before the President had authorised it to, to do so. Uh, and he was demonstrating his closeness to us. And we gave him a knighthood at the end of it. Indeed. We did indeed. Gentlemen, thank you. Neil, thanks for coming in. It really is a fascinating read. Thanks to Neil, thanks to Christopher and Julian and all the other contributors we've had on the programme this week. Keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can download the programme as a podcast. Search for BFBS SITREP. Join us again next week, but from me, Tim Cooper, bye for now. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.